Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. A very warm welcome to the London School of Economics and Political Science for this evening's event. Uh, my name is Stuart Corbridge. I'm the Deputy Director and Provost at the school. So it's a very great honour and pleasure for me to welcome Sharon Mears back to the LSE this evening. Many of you, I think, will know that Sharon leads enterprise strategy for Magento, which is eBay's global e-commerce platform on the west coast of the States. Some of you will also know that Sharon was previously a managing director at Goldman Sachs, where she worked for 16 years, I think, up to 2005, and that she's the co-author with Joanna Strober of Getting to 50-50, How Working Parents Can Have It All, uh, copies of which are outside for sale after the lecture, and Sharon will be happy to sign them. Sharon also serves on the board of the National Women's Law Centre and sits on the Advisory Council of Stanford University's Clayman Institute for Research on Gender. What you might not know, however, is that Sharon is an alumna of the school, having studied here on the general course in economic history in 1986. She's also an alumna of Harvard and NYU in the States. Uh, Sharon, being back with us tonight, uh, furthers one of the things that we've been trying to do this year in LSE's public events programme, which is the most important and most successful public events programme. I've said it many times, but it's true, in the world. And particularly, we've been very keen to have former students come back to the school uh, to share their experiences with current students and friends of the university. I was very lucky two years ago to meet Sharon in Palo Alto. I'm especially pleased that she's with us tonight. But she's also following in the footsteps uh, just this term of other recent alumni returnees. We've had Martin Lewis, we've had Danny Finkelstein, and we've had Rohan Silver. Last year, we were fortunate in April to have the then boss of General Motors, Dan Ackerson, who stepped back to the school for the first time since he left in 1987. And all of these uh, returns, return trips to the school, I think are a great cause for celebration. Sharon's talk this evening will focus on the very topical issue of men and women leading more happy and rewarding lives at home and at work. And Sharon has promised to share pointers and solutions in this difficult area that will draw on a broad range of government data social science research, and original interviews. Could I now ask the audience to turn your phones to silence if you haven't done so already? And if you uh, are tweeting, the hashtag for today's event is at LSE Mears. Uh, the event hopefully will be podcasted if all goes well, and that will be loaded onto the LSE website in due course. Uh, once Sharon has finished... Uh, talk, uh, we will open up in the usual way to the audience. But for now, please will you join me in welcoming Sharon Mears back to LSE to deliver a talk entitled Excel at Your Job, Be Home for Dinner. Well, thank all of you for being here tonight. Uh, as Stuart said, uh, I first set foot on this campus a very long time ago. I was 19 years old. 
Uh, and it was so long ago that while the Nat West was there, the ATM was not. <laughs> I learned as an American how to queue uh, in order to put my, my checks from home in my bank account. So it's a great honor to be here, and uh, thank you very much for having me. And again, thank you for that lovely introduction. So I'd like to first share a story about how I came to write this book, then take you into a bit of what we learned, and then tell you how we hope that getting to 50-50 can actually help people in their daily lives. So 10 years ago, I was speaking at a class, much like this one, at Stanford Business School. I had two little kids, a working spouse, and I had a job that required slightly unusual gymnastics. I was commuting to run a team in New York a week a month from California. Admittedly, not everyone's first choice. It was not mine, uh, but no worse than the lot of many fathers my age. So I got a lot of interesting questions from the students who were visibly concerned about me. Uh, one person put up their hand and asked, so, so Sharon, I hate to ask you this, but how do you feel about letting someone else raise your children? I was like, oh, I think I'm still raising them. Um, you know, and I said, I'm sure it sounds strange, but when I go to New York for a week, I can work really hard, and then I come back home, and actually I have more flexibility to really spend time with them. I feel I have latitude to do that, so I feel pretty connected, and, and it's okay. Then someone else puts up their hand and says, but aren't you ruining your husband's career? That, then I said, okay, 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 time check. I said, my husband is a pretty clever guy. And he manages this work-life stuff significantly better than I do most of the time. And so, you know, yes, it's hectic for him when I go off and leave him alone with the kids, but he manages and he's doing great. Thank you. But I stepped back from that talk and I said, wow, if this is what's going on in people's heads, no matter, I mean, no, no wonder we don't have more women leaders. And these are really important questions. And why aren't we talking about them more in public? So that's what started this book. So it turns out it's a really important time for us to be talking about this because in the US, uh, Pew Research, which is a huge think tank, uh, has been doing surveys for years on social attitudes. And today, 72% of young people want an equal marriage. They ask the question, what do you see as the ideal form of marriage? And 72% of people under 30 said, it is a marriage in which the man and woman both work and both care for kids. So that's terrific in lots of ways. But as much as we say we want it, great equal marriages and happy families don't happen automatically. And whether you're a young woman trying to find the right guy, whether you're young parents dealing with the chaos of little kids, whether you're a husband trying to help your wife get back to work, the core challenge is really the same, which is how can we thrive, how can we help each other thrive, both at work and at home? Right now, US surveys say this, that Roughly 80% of fathers want more time with their kids, 
and more than 80% of mothers who quit their jobs would prefer to stay. So, being where we are, you might ask, aren't there opportunities for gains from trade? Why can't we let men work a little bit less, have more time with their kids, let women work a little bit more, and be successful in their careers? So, we find that if men and women stand together and try to really experience things from each other's perspective, a lot of things can change. But you have to be a little bit brave. You have to be willing to challenge convention at least some of the time. And that's sometimes hard. But writing our book, we got to talk to hundreds of men and women across the United States who were doing just that. And this is what we learned. We found four solutions that really work. Get rid of guilt, particularly at home. Do right by our kids by focusing on what matters and letting go of the rest. Better habits at work, more focus on results and metrics and less worrying about who's sitting at their desk and when. Welcoming, welcoming men to the, to the household, to the home team, creating more of an opportunity for men to play a bigger role at home so women can lead larger lives at work. And fourth, clearing space to connect. In the free-for-all that's daily life, finding time to actually talk to the people we care most about is surprisingly hard to do. And it takes real effort. But what we found from talking to all these couples is that when people do these sorts of things, men and women really can stand in each other's shoes and work together much better. And that allows us to lead happier, more rewarding lives. And that is truly what getting to 50-50 is all about. So I'm going to share a little bit more about these solutions and, and give you some sense of the research and the stories that we heard that we found most helpful. And I hope that'll be interesting food for thought. And then I'm going to be very eager to hear all your thoughts and questions. So first of all, get rid of guilt. One obstacle women face when reaching higher is this sense of guilt that we sometimes feel dropping our kids off at daycare. I get that. But what's very, very comforting is what the research says, the reason you all got it on your chairs, uh, is the number one thing people tell us about this book when they read it is, oh my God, I feel so much better. Because if you see how many brilliant minds and millions of dollars have been spent to answer this question about women and work, it's pretty categorical that kids turn out equally well whether moms work or not. Let me tell you where this comes from. So the NIH, or National Institutes of Health in the US, has an arm that focuses on kids. And they conducted what is the largest ever study on child care and child <laughs> development. They looked at 1,300 kids for 15 years, collected millions of data points. And their conclusion was this. Kids with 100% maternal care fare no better than kids in childcare. And they felt so strongly about ending the debate about working motherhood that they said, please don't feel guilty. There is no reason for mothers to feel like they are harming their children if they decide to work. 
Interestingly, as I got to prowl through all this research and talk to the social scientists at the big US universities who participated, it turns out that even when my mother was young making these decisions, psychologists knew that when people pull back from work, depression risk rises. It's been true for women even when norms were really, really different. On the other hand, working helps uh, our sense of self. And in fact, there is a very large UK study covering 10,000 women that found uh, women with children, also known as mothers, are significantly happier if they have a job, and this is the surprising part, no matter how many hours it entails. Now, we can all talk about that in the, uh, in the Q&A, but I thought that was fascinating. There's also lots of really interesting research about how kids feel about this. And it turns out, in US surveys, two-thirds of children say that they get enough time from their mothers. And that is not different whether the mothers work or not. Now, you could say, how, how could that possibly be? Well, those wonderful social scientists are there doing the time diaries. And it proves a couple things, which I'm sure you all will recognize from your lives, which is mothers, be they working or not, feel pretty compelled to connect with their children for all sorts of reasons, social and otherwise. Uh, but it turns out working mothers are awfully good at not doing housework, so that saves a lot of time. <laughs> but the really exciting part of this is the dads. When men are more engaged with kids, really great things happen. In our book, we look at a range of fascinating studies that show how much we all gain when we encourage men to be actively involved with children. It talks about better grades, better outcomes in life. Uh, this particular study I'll point out here was done by the US Department of Education looking at 20,000 kids. And they were really going after what are the major predictors of school success in public school children. And they concluded that it was high levels of paternal involvement. It mattered more than anything else, more than what the mothers were doing. And their particular metric was Fathers who got to their child's school three times a year or more had children who had dramatically better grades and better behavior. And that was, again, after accounting for the behavior of the mother. I find that fascinating. So when we think of how we might all get rid of guilt, for me, I look at, at this kind of information and think about it, because certainly there are days when it feels hard. But the question is, are we going to allow guilt to guide us, or are we going to find ways to put it aside? As I said, when I was a new mother, when, in fact, when my son was born, I had to travel a lot. And that made me very, very anxious at first. But my husband pulled me aside and he said, look, we're going to be fine. Go off and do what you need to do. But the big step was for me to trust that he was right, that he would do at least a good, as good a job as I could. And that let me walk out the door, go to work, and leave guilt behind. Now we get to the fun part. Better habits at work. Who has seen Wolf of Wall Street? Anybody? Academy Award? Excellent. OK. I have to say, this is the first movie in years that actually shocked me. And I worked on Wall Street. So, <laughs> so fortunately, a few people actually work in environments like this. But if you recall the movie, uh, it, in fact, reminds us how often bad habits get confused with drivers of success. You know, the traditional view is that 
Success requires 24-7, eat, breathe, sleep, work, shell family life. That is certainly the environment that I grew up in. But what high performance looks like is pretty malleable and confusing. So when I was here as a student, I imagined that high performance looked like this. Brilliant people hovered over typewriters, it was that long ago, smoking cigarettes, maybe some scotch. So our view of high performance in the future is this Iron Man, you know, maybe it's a nuclear device with drinking lots of green juice to kind of deal with the toxins. But I think today, this is probably what most of us uh, fear we look like, because there are a lot of clever people running around doing just this, being always on, responding to emails, phone calls, what have you. The question is, is that help performance or hurt it? A large technology company wanted to know. So they pulled out a group of workers and IQ tested them in a nice, quiet surrounding. They discovered they had some pretty smart people working for them. Great. So they returned them to their natural environment, their cubes, deluged by email pings and texts and those clever custom ringtones, and guess what happened? They lost 10 IQ points. Gone. And the researchers told the company, you know, this is not a small thing. This is not a small thing. That is two times the IQ loss you suffer from smoking marijuana. So think about that. So the question is, if this is not what high performance looks like, where do we go to find better habits at work? Fortunately, there are lots of academics out there trying to answer that question. And the big business schools are increasingly coming up with really interesting work and metrics around what does truly drive success. And it looks much more like this. Focused, structured teamwork turns out to matter a lot more than time at your desk. And having metrics being very focused on measuring what matters, be they sales or good patient outcomes, and the steps that get you there, that allows you and your whole team to focus on what really matters and let go of the rest, and is statistically driving better better results for teams that practice that way. And it certainly aligns with what I have observed as a leader of teams in both technology and banking. The more I can adopt habits like this, the better my teams do. Let me give you a window on one of these fascinating studies. This is out of Harvard Business School, and there are a bunch of academics there who've spent years asking the question, what are the factors that drive world-class results? And in this case, they went to a US technology company, and they said, give us three outsourcers who develop software for you of the same type and quality, and we're gonna go study them. So the company identified teams in India, China, and Hungary. Again, same work, same quality. Really different ways. In India, the particular team was putting in uh, 12 hours a day, highly individualistic. The incentives in place inspired that. In China, eight hours a day, highly centralized, very structured work. In Hungary, 10 hours a day, very focused on the team, people backing each other up, sharing information. 
But what was most striking was the difference in work-life views. The team in India felt it was important to tell the researchers that to advance here, you must say that work comes before family. That shows you're a good, committed employee. Sound familiar? Uh, in China, by contrast, the managers uh, felt it was important to tell the researchers they were focused on getting people to be very zen-like, get the workout that they needed to complete, and get home, because they felt that this was in the interest of the productivity of their teams. And in Hungary, there was the view that you could work at home, you could work at the office, you know, you could be heads down for 14 hours a day if you had to get a product shipped, but the next day, eh, you could be there for five and go home and nobody thinks the worse of you. So is this just interesting workplace anthropology or can it be of some use to you and I? I think what's most interesting is if you look at this, the one thing the teams had in common out of all this difference was one belief, and that is that their way was the only way, that excellence is only produced by one set of activities and behaviors. And I have to say, in all of my working years, I have found that all of us tend towards those kinds of beliefs. I certainly do myself. But what if we free ourselves to imagine that there really are better habits out there. If we believe that, we will keep looking for them, and that makes it much easier to thrive both at work and at home. Which gets us to the payoff of all of this. There is a large study of IBM workers, and it says their happiest employees do two things we often think don't go together. They both work over 50 hours a week, and they get home for dinner most nights. So lots of hours, but enough control that they can see their families. There's another study which says this can actually work all the way up to the top. It looks at 1,000 Fortune 500 executives, one or two layers from the CEO, and surveyed them about their work patterns and work-life views. They found that a third of those executives felt they actually had enough time for their families. They also found that those people earned as much as anybody else, but they were different in two ways. Uh, first, they cut an hour a day. They worked five hours a week less than their peers. And second, they took all their vacations when others did not. So not huge tweaks, but little amounts of space to make room for family. let's talk about the third solution we heard a lot about from happy working families. Welcome men to the home team. So as much as we women say we want help, we often push men away because we think our way is superior, at least when running a household. What research says is that when women believe that men are equally good parents, those men actually do do their share at home. The problem is that very frequently other social attitudes get in the way. For example, some women I rather like in Palo Alto uh, decided that it was their duty to chastise a bunch of men I rather like in Palo Alto for encouraging child dueling. They, they felt it was really not, not 
socially constructive for the fathers to be out there with their, their daughters and sons and foam swords, encouraging violence. You, know, you can have a debate about this, but, but the fact that the women were sure that this was wrong is an example of what social scientists call maternal gatekeeping, the idea that I know I'm right and you're wrong. And it's a serious enough issue that psychologists have, have looked into it. There is a psychologist at, at uh, the University of California called Ross Park, and a couple decades ago, he was so tired of hearing uh, this idea that um, women were so certain that men could not feed even newborns properly, um, he decided to set up an experiment. So he had a situation where men and women, mothers and fathers, got equal time with a baby to feed it, admittedly from bottles. And um, he discovered that, guess what? Men can get a child to drink as much formula as a mother can. And uh, women show no signs of, of natural ability getting babies to stop crying. That in fact, men and women are equally flummoxed when first presented with a baby. <laughs> so, in fact, men may not be naturally uh, any, any worse at dealing with children, but the question is, how do they stay equal? And that's a function of how we act. So people ask, this all sounds great, but will men really sign up for it? And my experience is that they do if we talk enough about how 50-50 is good for men. Since 1990 in the US, white collar men have been working something like 10 hours a week more and yet wanting more time with their kids. So how do we make that a reality? First is to recognize that 50-50 is just good economics. It's better to have two incomes in a family. It takes a lot of stress off of men if they are not the sole provider. But it's also good for men's careers. It frees men to go back to school, to change jobs, even to start their own businesses. We have lots of men in our book who did that. But it turns out that it's also awfully good for men's health. There are huge longitudinal studies in the US being published that actually say that a man's experience in his family, particularly as a parent, matters more than his success at work in terms of any kind of psychological or long-term health outcomes. So just something to think about. The best part of all is that 50-50 is good for marriage. When couples both have jobs and both care for kids, divorce risk drops by half according to U.S. data of people married, married since the mid-1980s. And there are other studies, including the big uh, National Institute of Health studies that actually looked at what dual career does to marital intimacy. It also says that improves. Uh, there are even studies that say that it creates more sex in a happy married couple, but um, there, are, there, are, there are points and counterpoints around that. But in general, it's all, it's all very good, and uh, that is exciting. So the fourth solution is my favorite, because it's particularly hard for me. Last month, the New York Times talked about a new study that says modern marriage does make people happier, uh, but only if we clear enough time to connect. This picture actually spoke to me 
because I was trying to give myself an image of what it is we should all be trying to do to clear space in the jungle where we can actually connect with people we care about in our lives, put up walls, a little bit of shelter, just for a few hours to be alone and communicate. What does that mean in practice? Well, let me share a few things we saw happy working parents do once they've actually managed to create that space. So, uh, Cosmopolitan magazine, I don't know, people get that over here? Have you ever seen it? It's, it, it's quite a broad circulation and a little racy. They decided they were nice enough to write about us, and this is how they envisioned 50-50. My whole family was somewhere between shocked and excited. Um, I share it here because what I'm about to recommend does not sound this sexy, uh, but it really is. And that is the weekly one-on-one. -on -one. We do it at work. It's a boring thing from the office, but it turns out it really helps working parents. Someone in our book said it's actually more romantic than roses, carving out a time to talk by any means necessary, an hour on Sunday to sit down, go over the calendars, who's traveling, who has a late meeting, when's the school play, who's going to make dinner. The happiest working couples we talk to really push themselves to create a quarantine around some time during the week to figure that out, to figure out the crazy logistics of a modern family, and also to rebuild bridges which naturally break in any week. The other thing we saw people doing with Clear Space is coming up with pretty explicit family agreements and even writing them down. So a man told me that he and his wife had been arguing for years about his travel. She felt he traveled too much, he kept trying to reduce his travel, was never good enough. And finally, he just said to her, could you please write down what less travel means to you? And it turned out there was a very easy compromise. He thought that less travel meant not having long trips. She meant she wanted more uninterrupted weeks. So what that meant for them is he would travel less frequently, but for longer. Everybody was happy, but they couldn't figure it out until they wrote it down. I took this and many other examples to heart and in our family, we've done this. We have written down three pieces of a family agreement that turn out to be awfully useful. So in our house, we've agreed that dinner is at 6.30. Uh, that means, because we don't leave the office until about 6, that uh, we have very, very, very simple meals. Uh, our agreement is that, until my son learns to cook, and then it will get better. Uh, so our, we were also have an expectation of each other that we are going to be there most of the time. My husband and I have come to the conclusion that we each need a travel budget. So in the course of a year, we are trying to average something like five nights away a month. This month for me, it's going to be like 10. Uh, in February, it was two. But with that in mind, we both get much more prudent about responding to questions like, can't you go to Singapore for five days? So. Perhaps the most noticeable one is what we call the off-switch rule. And we have decided that parent email and video games are actually morally equivalent, and both must be turned off at 6.30 at dinner time, unless, of course, there's a massive emergency. Uh, but that lets us have some clear space where we can read and tell stories, 
And if we're really energetic, play a little bit of tag to make the nine-year-old happy. Uh, and we value it so much, we've even told our relatives to help us out. At the risk of annoying them, we've told them, please do not call after 6.30, uh, because that's our clear space. And we've switched off the phone, too. So the last thing I'll leave you with, perhaps the best use of clear space, a clear open channel to communicate in a 50-50 family, is asking for what you need with the right tone and the right timing. So a woman in our book is called Mary, and she was a lawyer. And she had two kids who were under three years old, and her husband was traveling four days a week. So one, one particularly difficult week, both kids were sick. She was up all night, three, four days in a row, and she just she had had it. And she calmed herself down, and she composed an email, and it said pretty much precisely this, up all night with kids, not working for me. <laughs> Solutions? Send. <laughs> and to his credit, her husband, uh, who is an investment banker and not among men who are typically good at responding to things like this, uh, shot back and said, you know, you always make those super nice dinners on Friday night so that we can have togetherness when I get home, but let's cut that out. How about I come home, I'll take the kids, I'll order pizza, I can be Friday night with dad, you go hibernate. Go shut yourself in your room, watch a movie, go immediately to sleep, do whatever you want. You sleep as late as you want. I want you to be happy for the rest of the weekend. She was like, I can work for me. Doesn't necessarily work for everyone, but I think what Mary said to me, recounting the story, has always stayed with me. And she said, when men don't recognize what you need, you can't get upset about it. You can't believe it means they don't love you. It's just that men and women were raised with different expectations about what needed to be done. So if you see something that needs, or you need help, just say it and say it in a friendly way. Very practical Midwesterner. So um, I like that one. So let me close with a few practical thoughts in the hope they'll be useful to you or to people you care about. Uh, any one of the solutions has a first step or always asked, what does one do first? Uh, but I think truly for any one of them, it starts with letting yourself be curious, letting yourself actually be nosy, and asking other people how they find their way. When I was pregnant with my first child, I called up a woman I barely knew, and I invited her to lunch. Uh, she was a senior investment banker. Her husband was a management consultant, and they had four children, kind of the Olympians of working parenthood. At lunch, she sort of mapped out for me how their family worked, and I wrote down every word. And it became the beginnings of a blueprint for our family. And I've tried to carry this on at the office, at dinner parties, in the park, asking people personal questions. We're all different. No two people have the same way of looking at things. But when you ask people about these personal parts of your lives, you'll likely hear something that opens a door, a door that you might have thought was previously closed. And I think as more and more talented men and women stand in each other's shoes and really do work together, 
I hope and really believe we will make our families stronger, we will build more rewarding lives, and we'll build a better, more equal world. And with that, I thank you and look forward to your questions. Do you want questions in one at a time or in groups? Uh, one at a time. Whatever, whatever works for you. Yeah, whatever works for you. <laughs> Gentleman over there. I mean, if, if you wait for the microphone to come to you, uh, just perhaps if you could say who you are, that would be really nice. I'm Michael Graysbrook. Um, you gave earlier an example of three teams in China, India, and Hungary. I imagine that the outcomes of those teams were different from each other, not necessarily in particularly predictable ways, but were there some things that they were better at and some things that they were worse at professionally as a result of their work patterns? So I did read the original academic paper, which I would be delighted to send to you. <laughs> but it, um, it, uh, the professor's named Leslie Perlow. She's gone on to do some pretty extraordinary stuff, including a book called Sleeping With Your Smartphone, which I would highly recommend. And it takes this work further and would probably answer your question better. Um, because I think the original academic paper does not go, and it's much more focused on, they took for granted what the US firm told them, which is the quality of work is of X quality in terms of bugginess or this or that, the other thing. And, um, and, and so their focus was really around the metrics that I, that I talked about. But her work uh, in her new book is, in fact, about, uh, she's been hired by Boston Consulting Group, BCG, um, for the last, I want to say, eight years. She has run what I call time diet studies. Uh, BCG was interested in improving their retention, and so they brought her and a team from Harvard Business School in to run experiments on structured, focused teamwork. And what they found, they, they studied a 1,000 teams as of two or three years ago. And those 1,000 teams were required to do the following. They were required to have a weekly meeting in which everyone talked about not only their work, uh, but their personal commitments. So people were not having to hedge and make stories around the fact that you know, their spouse was furious and so they couldn't work late on this date, or the fact that their child's birthday was on Tuesday. People were just out about it, and then everybody could calmly plan around these things. Um, the second thing that was required was that each team member was, was uh, assigned a predictable night off. So 6 o'clock, you may not check email. No one may call you. You may not even look, you know, anything related to work. Uh, that was the deal. And everybody, the rest of the team was obliged to make your time sacrosanct. And what they found was these 1,000 teams dramatically outperformed the standard teams at BCG. So they have now been rolling this out globally at BCG, which I think is pretty exciting. So she, she does go in her book into details and different factors, and um, you might find that interesting. Yes. Just perhaps if we start just right by you, and then we'll sort of come down the front. Yeah. Thank you. Hi, I'm Shani Olgad and I'm um, associate professor here at LSE and my research is currently actually on stay-at-home mothers in the UK. So I find your work very interesting. Um, I want to start by an irony, I think it's ironic, at least for me personally, that um, 
none of us here can be uh, at home for dinner. Um, but actually, this irony leads me to a more serious question, which is um, about whether there is any room in your analysis for thinking about structural um, issues. Because it struck me that the four solutions are very much ultimately in the neoliberal spirit about ourselves taking responsibility of our lives, getting rid of guilt, improving our lives, and so on. Um, which we know is not the entire story. Absolutely. And so I wanted for you to reflect whether there is any sense, particularly from a, the old-fashioned feminist perspective, um, any sense of trying to challenge or thinking about changing um, corporate culture and business culture rather than just adjusting ourselves within this culture. Absolutely. First of all, I like to consider myself an old-fashioned feminist, as does my nine-year-old daughter. And so, um, but but uh, by way of background, I grew up in D.C. I interned on Capitol Hill. Like, I do believe government makes a difference, and I believe policy matters. Uh, but I did spend years and years on involved with the National Women's Law Center. It's an incredible organization that you know created uh, our laws about pregnancy leave, um, equality and education funding for girls, all that stuff. So I am a deep believer. What I would tell you though is, when you stand inside a company like a Goldman Sachs, and as I discovered, pretty much any other kind of company, big or small, if the demographic of the room of people who make the decisions is not significantly female or is, does not have working parents, i.e. women who have significant responsibility for children or men who have significant responsibility for children, that room will not make decisions that you would want in any policy you'd advocate for. And what I think, um, in the book we actually tell a lot of stories like this. You know, part of the reason I got excited about writing this book, my co-author, um, started as a lawyer at big law firms. Uh, she ended up at Bessemer Ventures, which funded a lot of you know, 1999 uh, internet startups. And so she was on the board of a lot of very young companies in Silicon Valley where you think everybody's modern and open-minded and whatever else. But her story sounded just like mine. They were stories about a bunch of guys sitting in a room. She would be the only woman. And they would be talking about, you know, there is a woman, a founder, who is, um, who's gotten pregnant. And th th this is in our book. It says, it says um, somebody in the room says, what is she thinking? And Joanna says, she's thinking she's 39 is what she's thinking. <laughs> what are you thinking? And, and, um, and, and then ensued this very difficult conversation where if, you, if you're the only member of the Green Party among a bunch of industrialists, it's really tough to get environmental policy passed. And so the question is, how do you get more advocates for sensible policy, be it law or be it just folkways in an office? And I think it really starts, it, my experience is it doesn't happen at all without having enough uh, women or men who really empathize with women because they have the experience of uh, they, they have a series of experiences, actually really re neat research about which men are great allies to women in the workforce. Um, and, and so the way this book talk started, this Stanford lecture was originally called, um, I really talked about the, the kind of vicious or virtuous cycle we could have, you know, to basically to get more women to stay, we need more women. 
and uh, to get more women, we you know need more women to stay. It goes round and round and round because the problem that, that I certainly saw in large companies was when you had a, a critical mass of women or right-minded, like-minded men, policy would change or folkways would change. But then when that critical mass disappeared, it was right back to the dark ages. So I, I go back to you need both. You absolutely need both. Come down to the front. Yeah. Um, Kate Grusing, also a general course, a year before you. I'm curious, there are two major structural differences in the UK labor market I can think of than the US. And one is that women here take significantly longer maternity leaves. And secondly, that in the UK, like most of Europe, people take their vacations. And their vacations are materially longer than the US. I'm interested, I don't know if you're close enough to. Um, the data outside of the U.S., do you think any of your recommendations would be materially different um, if you were writing this book based on U.K. or European data? So I'll have to say I'm not familiar enough, um, I'm not familiar enough with the data here. Um, but I guess one of the things I'm very excited about, I actually got to meet uh, an, an author earlier this week who is a UK expert on this subject, that I think what is going to be neat over time is as uh, kind of more, more of us uh, start talking about this and the similarities and differences across our countries. Because, for example, uh, I, I was looking up, I was curious after watching the Ukrainian protests uh, last yesterday, what percentage of the Duma was, was female, and I, I'm not, don't quote me, but it looked like it was something like 9% or something like that. And then somebody pointed out, while the UK may be 22%, France is 12 I mean, they have the crushes and the this is and the that. What is that? <laughs> so I think my, my experience is that sometimes um, the supports alone don't do the trick. I mean, I'm a, I love the ideas from the Nordic countries about requiring husbands and wives to, to share the benefits uh, you know, use it, you know, split it or lose it kind of concepts because I think that, again, allows men and women to stand in each other's shoes in a better way. Yeah, um, one of the things that's sort of emerging, we're currently emerging from a huge economic crisis and, and obviously um, you know, huge youth unemployment. And one of the things that's phenomenal that's emerging is uh, employers are demanding more and more for less and less from the, the next generation of employees. So, what hope have, have we got to sort of entrench these kind of habits amongst that generation, my generation, if you know I'm being expected to to jump higher and longer for for less and less money? How, how is that going to work um, in the long term without some kind of massive um, political, economic, structural change? You mentioned the Nordics. I mean. Uh, you know, in the US and UK, we don't have that economic structure there. So, so how how would you solve that without a complete change to and a complete overhaul of the neoliberal landscape? It's a great question, but sadly, one again, I'm not expert in. But um, but I think you're absolutely right. I think uh, you know we're going to go into an election season this year in the US, and the number one topic is income inequality. I mean, I am embarrassed to say that I have grown of beyond age, um, in a time where income inequality in the United States has gotten to a really very sad level. I mean, it was much better when I was born. What, is, what a terrible thing. You know, my dad actually 
Um, I, I like to say I'm the product of a government program. My dad was basically raised in a shack in Washington State. He only got to go to finish high school, go to college, get a PhD, come to London, thanks to the GI Bill. Um, people forget that. And you know, that is social mobility in the United States is a function of a lot of government programs. And you know, to your point, I think we have forgotten that. Um, so I don't know what the right balance is, but I do think what we can all do, and this is kind of the point of the book, is optimizing within, we can all go out and vote, that's what we can do. <laughs> we can beyond that, in day-to-day in -day life, it is stuff like measuring what matters. So in, a, in our book, we talk a lot about people who, even I at Goldman Sachs, the metrics that I got were really pretty useless. It didn't tell you who was productive and who wasn't and how I could manage my team better. So I made them. I basically created a team of people who could actually help me understand how people should measure their time. And lots of people or people should actually use their time and what was most productive. And I think if you walk into any boss and say, look, tell me the three things that matter to you most that I can quantify and I'm going to focus on those like crazy and then you have some, some cadence for sitting down with them, I think that really helps. So that's, again, something we talk a lot about in the book. I hope that helps. Right at the back, please. Hi, I'm Jasmine Olibanjo. Um, I have a question in regards to a figure you provided um, in one of the early slides. It said, kids with 100% maternal care they're no better than um, kids without, I think, with work, working mums or something. Um, and my question is around what do you say to those kids that grow up and they say their parents were never, were never there? Or what, what kind of response do you have to that when their parents are just working, they don't see them half the time? That's kind of an emotional side that can't really be measured. So how do you kind of quantify that they fare no better? So... I'll answer your more profound question first, your very profound question first, and then I'll talk about the research itself, which is voluminous and lots of different measures. Um, but I think, I think what nobody is saying, neglect your children. That is a bad idea. <laughs> Neglecting children is a bad idea. The question is simply, um, what do children need and how do you make sure you're giving them that? And that what is what I find, you know, I'm the child of a psychoanalyst, so I a child psychoanalyst, so I care about that a lot. And I think the more all of us can, I mean, the good thing we've done in this generation is become a lot wiser about um, what's important to children, you know, talking to them, positive discipline, all of these good things. But um, I think with that has come this sort of spinning out of control idea that if we all quit our jobs and just, you know, watch them. <laughs> somehow they'd be better. And the research says that's not right, that, that in fact there is kind of a natural balance, um, that there's a certain amount of engagement that kids need from their parents, but they don't need every single second of their parents' lives. But that shouldn't be taken to mean, you know, parents can disappear and, you know, not show up for birthday parties and things like that. So I just want to be very clear about that. Um, I take being a parent incredibly seriously. Uh, there isn't anything more important than that. And I you know, frankly think the men I respect would say the same thing. Um, in terms of the research itself, it, I really would encourage you to go look at it. It is fascinating. It's like almost what would happen was they, in following all these kids, they basically took researchers from 10 U.S. 
universities, Harvard, University of Texas, University of California, etc., and let them go and visit with the children and their families multiple times a year for 15 years. And so they were measuring them, and they were looking at their teachers and their caregivers, and you know how connected they were with their parents, you know how much they acted up in class or not. It was it's kind of amazing, and and that's the summary statistic. It doesn't mean that there weren't some children in the study who were neglected by their children. They were. And it doesn't mean that there, there were certainly, I'm sure, some kids with 100% maternal care who did spectacularly well. But what they're saying in aggregate is that it, you know, it was a wash and there are not reasons for women to stay home based on worries about child outcomes. Does that make sense? Thank you. Thank you very much for your talk. I'm an MSE student here at VLSE. I really like your three rules, uh, but I'm just wondering, leaving work at 6 o'clock, does it mean that you then need to work uh, later in the evening? And uh, kind of how many hours do you then actually work a week? Because kind of, I've, I've been working for three years of management consulting before coming to VLSE, and leaving work at 6 without working <coughs> later in the evening is just not possible. Yes, no, I, believe me. So, so in my 16 years at Goldman Sachs, towards the end, I learned how to leave at 6 o'clock. But that took a lot of courage. Um, but in my early years, and I think this is, this is an important thing to bear in mind, while you are not in control, um, while you are not in control and you are being judged by somebody else's framework, you kind of have to ask yourself, can I tolerate that framework? And is there something I will get out of it? And you know, for me, the answer was yes. And I used to work very 24-7. I used to, in the early 1980s, I worked on failing banks. So it was truly like emergency room finance. And uh, you know, I would be at the office at 2, 3, 4 in the morning all the time. Um, but I, what, part of why this work now resonates with me is I know what a mess we made <laughs> out, of, out of so much work because we were all so tired and not really thinking straight. Um, so I, as I have, uh, I actually now hire people from investment banking into my, my new job, and I'm very clear with them, I expect them to go home. And when I start to see them burning out, I'm like, that's enough. Go home, see your children, <laughs> take a break. Um, because I really do think you get better performance that way. Um, so I think part of it is, in, in, when you're building your credibility, you have to cope with the rules that, that are given to you. But back to what we talked about earlier, the number one thing that I have seen work time and again in research and people we interviewed was this getting incredible clarity about what your line manager wants from you and making sure you deliver that and deliver it at a high level of quality. And then giving yourself freedom to say, everything else that's not on this list, I may think it's important, but I'm not doing it. <laughs> this is what I'm doing. I'm doing these three, four, or five things, but not more. So does that make any sense? There's quite a few hands. So we come to you and then we go up and back down. Hi. Um, do you think young women are discouraged to have children nowadays? And what would you say is the optimal age to have a child? Whoa. When you're ready is the optimal age to have a child. You know, um, there is a woman in, in our book who had her kids in her 20s and you know, went on to be a very prominent woman in finance. And I'm like, wow, I couldn't have followed that path because I was not mature enough in my 20s to get married to anybody and certainly not to be a, a mother. 
But um, so I, th- I think it really is a very personal choice. I-, I do think it is dramatically easier given where the world is today. I do think it is easier to climb the ladder a bit, prove yourself, have look for skills that are scarce, and often that means technical in some way, because those it, it's like building a company. It's you want you want. Um, barriers to entry, you want a defensible niche, something that you are uniquely great at. Uh, Because I think once you have that, it becomes much easier. You're a valued employee when you become a parent. And if you choose to work differently in a way that other people think is odd, they'll say, yeah, but she's really good. (laughs) So so, uh, that, that would be my thought on that. That goes for guys, too. Absolutely. You bet. Yeah, you, you were first. Hi, um, I'm just Fatima. Um, I just wanted to uh, add on to the question that Jasmine up there asked. Um, uh, you mentioned how um, children don't need their parents with them every single minute, but when they're a very young infant, um, they need more time from their parents than when they're older. Does your attitude towards work life and family life have, has it changed as the older children have gotten older, and have and would you um, advise differently to the point that you've gotten more screen regarding that? Sorry, would you say the last sentence again? Um, would you advise differently regarding um, your points on your screen right in front of us, um, with regards to your the different amounts of time your children need at different ta- ages in their life? Yes, that, that is, that's a um, a very good point. That. One of the things I often say to other working mothers is it all gets easier when your smallest child turns three. (laughs) Because before they're three, the amount of sleepless nights and the amount of arguments and challenges you don't know quite what to do with um, is is high. And I think that that makes the amount of time you need either for just being with your child and you know, knowing it's going to take potentially 90 minutes to get out of the house to go to gymnastics class. Um, those those uh, sorts of things get easier once you have a kid who talks well and is in preschool and, and all those good things. Um, so I do think early on um, it is very helpful for parents to understand that giving, cutting themselves some slack and giving themselves some amount of, of flexibility helps. Um, and that can be, flexibility can be as, you know, it can be, uh, you know, we're not going to play soccer on the weekends. We are going to invite the friends that we never see to our house with their small children and they will all run around and that will be our, our social life or, you know, things of that sort. That, that actually, um, so, so I think there, there's, uh, the, the chaos of small children means that um, you do need to be around more. It is more limiting in, in what you do either in your work time or your non-work time. Um, but rewarding and interesting. I have to say I'm enjoying the rest of it a lot more. <laughs> For any of you who have children under three, I, I, we, we decided there needs to be an it's, it gets better campaign for, for, for mothers. Um, because I have to say, you know, five-year-olds may talk back, and I now have an almost 13-year-old, and there's a lot of debate, but I welcome that. That is wonderful as far as I'm concerned. It's a sign of a good mind. Um, but, uh, but, but I think, you know, to this point, it's always a question. In, in our book, we talk a lot about, you know, how much is too much. You know, how much work is too much for the family, both from the father and the mother. 
And you know, how do you look at your children kind of every week and every month and say, how are they changing and what kind of engagement do they need from us? And I find that's a, an ongoing process. Um, hello, I'm Sarah Jackson. I'm the Chief Executive of a charity called Working Families, which is a work-life balance charity. And I'm really intrigued by uh, what you, I'd like to know more about where you think men are going to be in this debate as we move it forward. Because so much of what is written and debated at the moment is written from a mother's point of view. I mean, this is about welcoming men to the home team and applauding male parenting innovation, which is fantastic. But as somebody said earlier, it's not about when's a good time for a woman to have a child, it's also when's a good time for a man to have a child. And we do a, an annual survey where we talk to working parents, and I've been really struck by changing attitudes among young fathers. And this year's survey showed in particular that it's the young fathers aged 26 to 35 who report the worst work-life balance and really resent their employers for it. They blame work for making their lives miserable. So do you think that we're about to see men leaping into the, the fray and making the changes that women have championed for the last 30 years? I sure hope so, and I want to see your survey. Um, I, I really hope so. I really hope we are at an important moment in, in time when it has become socially acceptable and enough for men and women to talk together about this um, and move things forward. In our book, we actually talk about um, a number of people who in the 1970s were making these arguments for fathers. And so there's always been a quiet, revolutionary voice among you know, working, working, working fathers. Um, it, it just, for a variety of reasons, has not been well heard. I don't know if you guys look at research from Catalyst. It's a, uh, uh, it looks at the role of women in, in large companies in, in the U.S., but they have done a lot of work around uh, engaging men as allies in, in this discussion and, and say some similar stuff. I, I would point out two things that, to me, like your survey, point to hopeful signs that things are going to change. Um, one is, I will encourage you all to go look up on YouTube, type in man-bassadors, like man and ambassadors, man-bassadors. They're this fabulous group of young men at Harvard Business School. Uh, they are working with Harvard's new dean uh, on the subject of you know, how do men and women stand in each other's shoes and work together. And these very telegenic gentlemen uh, make the case in a minute-long video about why they have created this this club at Harvard Business School so that they are not on the wrong side of history. They do not want to be the people who are causing their best friends who happen to be girls, women, uh, or their daughters to have less than a fully meritocratic experience in the workplace. And so I say, hail that. <laughs> the, more, the more we can encourage that to happen, the more we can make it comfortable for men to talk about these things to each other. I think that's really good. Uh, the other party I would, I would point out, there's a guy named Brad Harrington at uh, University of, uh, sorry, Boston University. And he's a very interesting guy. He, he was an executive at Hewlett Packard and then became an academic. And uh, he runs a center at Boston University completely focused on giving voice to professional men who are fathers and creating change in corporate policy. So that might be interesting. Perhaps we go into the middle and then the gentleman behind. Hi, my name's Laura Vosper. Um, first of all, thank you for your excellent remarks tonight. Um, 
I wondered whether you had any thoughts to share in terms of on-ramping. So given so many women do leave the workforce um, to, to childcare full-time, that's obviously only for a period of time. So what have you seen that works in terms of getting back into full-time work, both uh, perhaps as individuals um, but also perhaps things that companies are doing structurally? Great, great question. Um, and this is also a subject that I'm getting more and more optimistic about. Um, you know, in the book, we have data that existed five plus years ago, which was which was a little discouraging on the subject. That despite the fact companies were trying really hard to reach out and try to unwrap women, there was sort of mixed success with that. Um, I, I I believe some of those programs are starting to bear more fruit as as they keep going. I think all of these things just require persistence, but. Even more inspiring, I'll just kind of tell you kind of three little anecdotes. So at a book talk we had uh, for our paper bank relaunch in Palo Alto, uh, there's a woman who uh, works at Facebook, and she, um, you know, it's a very demanding job, and she had been out of the workforce for a good while, and she was standing there with a woman who had worked at Salesforce, which is a um, very hard-driving environment. She went to Salesforce, both of them after having been out for a considerable period of time. But as I talked to them, one of the things that, was, that really struck me, which we'll get to my next story, is they really felt there was nothing lost by them being out of the workforce. And I think there is something to be said about um, having confidence that you are as valuable as you are. And I think we need to encourage women who have been out to feel that. And I'll tell you my next story, which is always a bit of a laugh to me. I had a very good friend who was a guy at Goldman, and he left to form a hedge fund. It was one of those hedge funds that went public. And I ran into him a year before, before they went public, and he said, I just hired a general counsel. He's an amazing guy. Weirdest story, he said. He walked in. He had a resume with a seven-year gap. A seven-year gap. Can you imagine that? He was a huge securities litigator. Now he wants to come and be our general counsel. I said, okay, so what was he doing? He's like, he was learning to meditate. <laughs> Great, I should do that. So, so, so uh, but the extraordinary thing was this man who had kind of had missed out this whole period of massive regulatory securities reform in the United States had absolutely no fear about jumping back in, reading a lot, and getting up to speed and going. And I think very often that's what we need to encourage in women is you know what? As Cheryl Sandberg says in one of her talks, like, look at the guy sitting next to you. Our, I mean, with all respect to, to our, our male friends, is you, know, you have a lot to contribute. And the question is simply, how do you figure out what parts of your skill set need to get updated and how do you do that? But then feel confident that you have, have something to give. I think another thing that I've seen really work very well is, in effect, the consult to permanent. So I think a lot of people who've been out form consulting firms. They go in and they contract to do work. And people get so fall in love with the quality of their work and say, "Can't you work here full time?" So or part time. Yes, the gentleman up there. Yeah. Hi, Sharon. Jonathan Edwards. Um, listening to your talk, it, it strikes me that the um, some of the careers where this is most a problem are uh, the ones where it's going to be most difficult. To change, you know, you think of big law firms like one where I used to work, um, where they're charged by the hour, of course. 
um, and you know the big banks and big consulting firms. Um, so I, I suppose I wonder if you um, have you delivered versions of this talk to, to the big firms and, and, and how do they respond and do you think there's hope for, uh, for change? So I both agree with you that they are the problem children of this topic, uh, having lived it for a very long time. Um, I will also tell you that Leslie Perlow, the Harvard Business School professor who's doing all this work, cut her teeth for many years as a management consultant. So I think it is the, the critique of those of us who have been in the trenches that hopefully will, will change a little bit uh, the way people, people look at this. Um, you know, there actually is also a very interesting professor who is an Englishman from, uh, named, named Nick Bloom, who uh, is at Stanford doing all sorts of really interesting work on the drivers of success and doing wonderful statistical work so that people who claim to care about numbers at the investment banks and the law firms or whatever you know, will have a harder and harder time refuting that the way they like to work presently is probably not so good. Um, but I will tell you a funny story. I, I was surprised to learn fairly recently that uh, Goldman has this new policy, at least in the U.S., that, um, that or maybe I'll say, at least in the San Francisco office. I believe it's broader than that. But, but there is a rule that you can't call the two-year analysts on the weekend. And, and I told, I told um, a guy I've recruited to my team at eBay, who used to be a Goldman Sachs analyst, the story, and he, he laughed. He was like, how did they get any work done? <laughs> but uh, but it, seriously, I think the point is, the message is getting through to people that you know, if you're going to hire people who are great and keep them, you cannot burn them out because over time, uh, they're, just, they're just not going to tolerate it. But I do think it's going to take, uh, take a long while. In our book, uh, interestingly, some of the best stories about constructive change came from elite law firms. Uh, we profile three in our book. And on the one hand, you would think they would be impossible because the only place you, um, the only way that paid is by, is by working more hours. Uh, but on the other hand, you know, they, the managing partner of one of these firms said to me, look, you know, over half of the people coming out of law school now are women. It, it, half of my brain trust is female. What am I going to do? I mean, I need to do something about this if I want the best people. And so they have been very clever, again, going to uh, metrics on, you know, just how, if a woman wants to work part-time, what does that mean? What are the gives and gets? What is it? You know, how does her responsibility get taken up by somebody else? What does it do to her partner clock? So I think there's a lot of really good thinking going on in some of these places, but, but I agree with you. It's, um, there's work to do. Yeah, we've probably got time for one or two last questions. Yes. Hi, thanks uh, for the tips. Um, I'm Lucy Cabrera. I'm, trying, I'm a pharmacist trying, uh, working for the NHS. I'm trying to do two jobs at the same time, so I'm going to try and put some of this in practice. See what happens. Um, I just wanted to ask you, um, is there any difference, because you were saying that most of these problems come from the fact that people are, uh, have different expectations, men and women, when they're brought up uh, sorry, differently, with men to do more work, and women to stay home, whatever. Is there any difference in uh, gay couples that have children <coughs> or adopt or anything like that? Do you have any, any, any studies about this? Or they tend to do exactly the same thing, replicate the sort of, or the old sort of thing? So, so um I have looked at some, but not a lot, of work on that subject. 
and, and uh, you know, some of the people who actually contributed to the early work here were in single-sex couples. So I, it, it, it certainly was in mind. Um, but it, and it's very interesting. It seems, it seems to fall in two directions. So there are, I think, single-sex couples who are very clear on not wanting to look like a traditional mother and father and, and trying to be egalitarian about it. And then I've also run across single-sex couples who are quite happy <laughs> to to divide along traditional lines and the, the nurturer and the provider. Uh, so I think it's an interesting it's an interesting question. Um, you know, some people clearly like that, and uh, you know, I, I've spent my life trying to get away from that. <laughs> so it's a, a free world, and that's a nice thing. So yes, maybe sort of the last question because we've still got time for book signing. Thank you. Uh, I'm Chloe Wong, and I'm an undergraduate here. So uh, family and work-life balance seems a bit distant to me, but it's really alarming to see my friends are already ready to cut back on the career for the family. So I'm just wondering your view on that. Well, I think there's a great book on the subject called Lean In. <laughs> um, but seriously, I think... I think one of the things that Sheryl Sandberg observes and talks about, I think any one of us who has had the privilege of working with many talented young women has also observed, which is I think across societies there is so much in the ether that tells women to pull back from full speed way too early. And that in fact going faster, accelerating into the turn is a better strategy because the, the more expertise you have, the more clout you have, the more you have in your bank account, guess what? The easier it is to negotiate differently um, if you actually need to. And, and some, I mean, some people do have the good fortune that they have ended up running their own company or you know, they work with a great group of people and they don't have to negotiate that hard, but most of us do. And so you know, I would argue and I tell every young, talented woman to just get out there and Try to figure out what you love, that you're good at, and that you can imagine uh, will, will pay the rent for a long period of time. Um, and, and then try and go as fast as you can because you'll end up having much more latitude to have multiple things in your life if you do. Does anybody, would anybody like to ask a, a last question? Yes. Just, just wait for the microphone just a sec. I do feel I'm not entirely. My name is Julia, um, but I'm not entirely sure whether I would have children in my life. And do feel that you can only be truly happy in your career and family life if you do have children. So I too was not at all sure I would have children. Um, in fact, at my wedding, one of my best guy friends from uh, from college gave up and got up and gave a toast, and he said. The feminist revolution must be won because Sharon is getting married and we think that means she's going to procreate. Because I had declared in my youth that I was not going to have any of that. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, I, I, I really do think that um, many of us can be perfectly happy without having children. Uh, I do think it's a pretty fascinating experience being responsible for a young, a young person. But we can do that as aunts, as uncles. We can adopt people later in life. We can do whatever we want. Um, so I think there are many ways, but, but I think the reason we've talked about it in this context, uh, the issue about women's equality in the workforce, I think, unfortunately, is not dramatically easier for women who have no children. It's worse for women who do have children. 
But you know, sadly, uh, there are some amount of friction due to you know competence versus likability, other gender taxes, even for women who don't have children. And so, you know, it, I, I think I ultimately looked at that and said, "Damn the torpedoes! <laughs> We're going to go and walk into this chaos and see what happens." Um, but, but I think we all have to make our own decision about that. Thank you. Just before I uh, offer some thanks, can I just check, are we going to do the book signing outside or are people going to bring the books down here? They're going to bring them downstairs. They'll bring them downstairs. So um, if you do want to get hold of a copy of Sharon's book, I urge you to, you can buy the books outside, but I think you bring them down here for Sharon to sign them. Um, it just remains for me to thank the LSE events team for putting on tonight's event. Uh, we do about 350 of these a year. I was telling Sharon we get about 15 million downloads of these things from the podcast, so it's an extraordinary enterprise. Thanks, everybody, for coming out tonight. We live in a very large city, of course, with very long commute times as well that I think affect family life quite significantly. It's very different from living in a place like Cambridge or perhaps even Palo Alto. Um, but most of all, and thanks for some great questions, thanks very much to you, Sharon, for coming back to LSE, which is great, uh, but also sharing with us your thoughts, and not only for giving a very good talk, but dealing so persuasively, I think, and so expansively with all the questions that you got. Thanks very much indeed. Well, thank you very much.